This is Alan Arnold, and you're listening to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. Today's message is actually taken from a message that John gave at a Men at the Outpost event. And this message was entitled, How God Grows Us Up. We've divided it into two parts for the podcast series. So today is part one of How God Grows Us Up. Welcome to a kind of a workshop. Welcome to a place of masculine culture. I ran across a great line by George MacDonald. I'm working on a book right now, and I love this line so much, and I hadn't read it for years, but the quote is, because we are the sons of God, let us become the sons of God. Okay, You are, you are a son of God. You are. But therefore, let us become sons. Let us become the sons of God. I mean, if you wanted to understand, those of you who are new to what this is on here at Men at the Outpost, we could put that on a flag and run it up the pole. That's kind of what we're after here. What does that look like? How do we walk in that? How do we embrace sonship more fully? What does it look like, taste like, feel like to become a son since you are a son? You are a son. You're a son. That's all good. That's all taken care of. But becoming a son, growing into that, living out that, oh, it's like the best thing in the world. Yeah. It's worth everything it costs you to do that. Now, coming in off of vacation and a writing project, I'm finishing up a book this week on prayer, and we got a puppy today which is like just having a living joy bomb in your house, but just like just to be present here to you, to be present to this evening, to be true. Just be kinder to your soul and what you ask your soul to do. These hard turns that we just into this and out of that and into the next thing and out of that. Like just there's like a kinder way to approach your own soul. Okay, so because we are the sons of God, let us become the sons of God is like a a banner that we sort of run around outside the building with. And you are a son. Becoming a son is a process. And the idea of maturing into full sonship is something that is just, is just woven into the scriptures. It's just an assumption that's deep in there. The dear friend of Jesus, the apostle John, writing late in his life, says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Children, young men, fathers. You see the assumption? It's so kind. This is a very kind thing. Like this will help you orient yourself in your own life situation, but it will also help you kind of understand where other guys are at, regardless of the color of their hair or the amount of hair they have. Like children, young men, fathers. There's this progression, and he's very, very kind, right? There's no shame in you know being younger in the journey, wherever that is, like, that's all great. That's all good. All are welcome. 
in these stages understand different things about God. They know different things as they progress into a maturity, right? We are all in the process of growing up. And God is very committed to that process. In fact, he has arranged for reality. It is one of the great teachers of the world. He has arranged for reality largely as your classroom. It's your tutor, right, in growing up. So again, George MacDonald, he says, what father is not pleased with the first tottering attempt of his little one to walk? What father would be satisfied with anything but the manly step of the full-grown son or daughter? Right? It's just so good. Like, he loves where you're at. He gets where you're at. Grace, mercy, delight over that. And he's pretty committed to your growing up, as you would be with your own children. Teaching our sons to drive was probably much like your experience learning to drive, or those of you who are fathers and have children that you have taught or are teaching to drive, yeah, you know, it's a little bit of a hair-raising experience. Like the first few merges onto the freeway felt like, you know, being in the Millennium Falcon when Han Solo kicks it into, you know, light speed. And then the sudden stops, you know, guaranteed to send you through the windshield and just all of that stuff. And it's beautiful. Like, it's all great. No shame, right? That's all part of learning to drive. But here's the deal. Like, that was my sons when they were 15, learner's permits, you know, and 16. And Like, I was delighted with where they were at then. Ten years later, if they were still driving like that, I would not be delighted. You see that children, young men, fathers, like, Every father is pleased with the first attempts. Like, way to go. You took a swing at that. I'm proud of you. Way to go. And let's not be there 10 years from now, right? Let's grow into the greater things. So that's kind of by way of prologue. Now, how does God grow us up? Like, I'm going to walk through a couple of very simple ideas tonight, the truth of which is so profound and so deep deeply woven into the fabric of the universe. Like, if you can get these couple of things, they will see you a long ways, all right? First thing is, God is committed to growing you up. The second is, there is a way things work. This is the first big tutor of the boy. This is the first kind of and, and it takes years, right? This is boyhood years here. Beloved son, cowboy stuff. This is, there is a way things work. Though I grew up in something of a difficult home situation, my boyhood summers were almost idyllic. I was shipped off from Southern California and the suburbs and the drug culture and all that to my grandfather's cattle ranch in Eastern Oregon. I spent my summers there working on his ranch. I mean, it was kind of him to call it that because it gave it a dignity. But I, I mean, I was being fathered there. I was being grandfathered there. And my grandfather, I think I was about eight years old. My grandfather bought me a BB gun. 
And his intention was he had kind of this plague of pigeons in the barns. He was a cattle rancher. These pigeons had taken over the barns. They were making a mess. He was convinced they were carrying diseases to the cattle. And so he wanted me to wipe them out. I mean, like a boy with a BB gun on his grandfather's ranch for the entire summer is the richest man in the world. Right? And he bought me one of those milk carton size containers. You remember those of BBs? I mean, it's inexhaustible resources is all a boy knows, right? Like this is the, yeah, this is the everlasting stream. And so now the pigeons were the project, but my actual personal passion was frog hunting. And there was kind of a hired hand on the ranch who was great at everything with his hands and horses and all that, a Hispanic guy. And his name was Lupe, and he had a son named Lupe Jr. So Lupe Jr. was about my age, and he had a BB gun, and I had a BB gun. And so we would stalk the irrigation ditches and trying to hunt frogs. Now, here's the problem. The frogs blend in fabulously. I mean, like a froggy color is like the original camouflage, right? It's kind of mottled, you know, greens and tans, you know, and... And it fits perfectly in mossy water and perfectly in reeds and perfectly in the channels of these irrigation ditches. So our initial thought was we're going to sneak up on these guys, you know. So we kind of get down on hands and knees and sort of, you know, Daniel Boone it up to the thing. And the problem is, is that the frogs have been hunted by herons for years. The frogs know that if they move, they reveal their location. So they just, they just hang there. They're just perfectly still and you can't find them. So our first, you know, attempts at a total failure. We finally figured out the technique. What you had to do was walk along the irrigation ditch about three yards away, slowly enough that it would cause the frogs to maybe hop or dunk, bloop, or something, not enough to scare the hell out of them, right? So that they'd be gone for 20 minutes, just enough to get them to do a little something or a splash, and then you could wait for them to surface again. And, you know, that was our successful frog hunting. And... It was the beginning of a boy's education in one of the core lessons of the masculine journey. There is a way things work. And if you want your life to go well, you got to accommodate, right? You got to line up with the way things work. You can't ignore the oil level in your truck and expect it to run forever. You can't go out and run a marathon without training for it, right? You'd better be downwind if you try and put a stalk on an elk or a whitetail. You can't turn that canoe broadside in the current or you're all going for a swim, right? There's a way things work. And I learned a lot of that glorious, boyish, masculine lesson in my summers at the ranch. My first horse ride, I think I was five years old. My grandfather put me in the saddle in front of him. I had a cowboy hat on. I mean, I was, I was something. And he was just taking me out for very first ride. Well, you know, I'd seen the Lone Ranger. I'd seen some of those shows. And so I took my cowboy hat off and did this. Well, there's a way things work with horses, right? And when the horse in his peripheral vision sees this thing swirling in the air, I mean, out of there. And thankfully, it was not a train wreck. And Pop and I, you know got thrown, but not badly and not hurt. But wow, was that an education on when you're on the back of that horse, you don't get to do just any old thing you want to do, right? All those lessons 
right? Don't forget your gloves. Don't forget your gloves when you're going out fixing fence because you're going to wind up with blisters and it's going to be a terrible week while you have those, right? There's a way things work. This is one of the essential lessons in every boy's life and in every man's. This is one of the reasons why I love the movie The Kingdom of Heaven. The movie The Kingdom of Heaven is a fabulous study in the masculine journey. If it's been a while since you've seen it, if you've never seen it, the story is about a fatherless young man who is invited into an amazing adventure, journey, initiation, and eventually kingdom by his true father. He doesn't know his true father. His true father shows up in his life, invites him on this journey. I mean, it's like right out of the Gospels. And at first, like many men toward God, they're like, ah, Balian is his name. He's like, yeah, I'm not really sure about you not really sure about your intentions toward me. And at first he rejects the offer, like many men do with God, understandably. But then Balian changes his mind. Now, the story takes place in the Middle Ages, around the 1300s, first in France and then in Jerusalem. Balian's father is actually a great man. He's a great lord in Jerusalem. He has an army at his disposal lands, estates, and he has a very close alliance with the king of Jerusalem. So he has invited Balian to come on this journey. First, Balian rebuffs him, then Balian changes his mind. And what I want to show you is that when Balian joins up with him, the father growing up the son, okay, he is a son. He is Godfrey's son. Now he has to become his son. Okay. Now, the father seems a little gruff, right? A little hard on Bailey, and he actually adores him. He loves him like a son. It's interesting that even that's right out of the New Testament, where Hebrews says, don't lose heart when God is disciplining you. He's doing it out of love. What father doesn't discipline his son? Right? Even that kind of... But there's that scene of... Best line in the scene is, we can find out together. Okay, that's the invitation of sonship. That's what you get, right? You get a father, and you get an invitation into learning the way things work. Now, he treats his wound, right? And he gives him a sword, and he begins to teach him how to use it. And the progression of the movie is Balian actually goes on to become a great swordsman and a brave and a valiant guy. A boy becoming a man, and a man who is still two-thirds boy, has a journey to take. Not only must he learn there is a way things work, he must also learn to adapt himself and his style of living to that fact. From the frog, to the oil in the truck, to the job, to the sword, to the heart of a woman. This is how wisdom begins to enter the soul. So because you are a son, you need to become a son. Second thought, there is a way things work. And that is a deep part of where our education is carried on. Now, the next thought in our progression, which is a brand new thought to most men, is that the very same thing holds true for the spiritual life. There is a way things work. There is a way things work. Take prayer as one example. 
those quick little prayers that people sort of toss up on their way to work, you know, Father, be with us today, ask your help, guide us in all we say and do, they don't do much. I mean, your own life proves it, right? That those quick little Jesus be with us prayers, they're not really effective. And there is something in us that just bristles at that, right? We, like, in the realm of being attacked by the enemy, and you're being assaulted with dark thoughts or nightmares or seduction or whatever it is, and man, you are under it. Like, for you to go, uh, Jesus, I ask you to help me. How does that go? Like, usually not a whole lot happens, right? Because in James 4, 7, you're commanded to resist. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. No resist, no flee. There's a way things work. Like, and there is something in sort of the Christian like, culture that just does not like this reality. I mean, why are we so irritated with the fact that there is a way things work in the kingdom of God, right? When we're not surprised or irritated by that fact with automobiles or finances or raising children or marriage or your sexuality. I mean, any of the things in sort of the natural world, you kind of recognize, yeah, no, there's a way things work, right? You want to run a marathon, you got to train for it and you better be ready that day. And, you know, on and on it goes. You get yourself into a marriage, like you got to understand something about the heart of a woman. You can't treat a woman like you treat a man. It doesn't go well, right? There's a way things work. And we sort of all acknowledge that reluctantly or not, but we acknowledge it and begin to try and, you know, you go to some workshops, you come to something like this, you know, you're trying to learn, you want to grow in that. There's a way things work, but like there's just this bristling that goes on when we apply this to the kingdom of God. Isn't that fascinating? Oh, there is a way things work in the kingdom of God. Some prayers work and some prayers don't, right? Jesus acted like this in all his teaching. In fact, his fundamental lesson to us, fascinating, the gospel that Jesus preached was actually not the gospel of salvation. He rarely used that word, once or twice, actually. It's not the gospel Jesus preached. Do you know the gospel that Jesus preached? What his message was constantly about? Okay, Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Right, Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Okay, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, like a mustard seed, like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, right? The pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like, is like, is like, right? The kingdom of heaven. And then he ends up calling his gospel the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 24, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus self-identifies, like he names his message, and what he calls, you know, when you enroll in Jesus' academy, which is what it means to be a disciple, you become an apprentice of Jesus, what are you signing up for? Well, he tells you. He says, I'm going to teach you the ways of the kingdom of God. There is a way things work 
in the kingdom of God. And let me show you how these things work, right? Now, just as you have to learn the ways that ranch life works or driving a car works or playing an instrument or any of the joys that you have, like you guys who golf, like super difficult. You didn't just walk out there and start whacking at balls. And like, it takes a lot of skill and patience and baseball, basketball, lacrosse, skiing, motorcycle racing. I mean, can you name one area in life where this is not so? Like, there is a way things work. Okay, well, you have to learn the way that God's kingdom works. And that's how we go from children to young men to fathers. That's how we become sons. Oh, you are a son. You're loved. You're adored. You're in. You're good. Okay, now become a son by learning the ways of the kingdom, all right? And here's what's so fascinating to me. So Jesus Christ is crucified, he's resurrected, and then you kind of think, like, that's it, right? I mean, Easter morning? How can you top that, right? I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal and glorious and the best news in the world because it ensures your resurrection as well. But did you know that he hung around for a while? We kind of think crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, sort of, you know, all within a few days, right? Sort of like the wise men showing up in Christmas. Well, the wise men actually didn't show up till like two years later. Or why did Herod kill all the young boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem and not just babies? Like we take the Christmas story and go with it, you know, and we take Jesus's like life and we do that as well. So this is fascinating. The book of Acts begins with Luke is carrying on his gospel, and really in some ways, and he says, after his suffering, he, Jesus, showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? The kingdom of God. This blows my mind. This is fascinating. You're like, wait, wait. Jesus, like, you're resurrected. You're about to ascend to the throne. Father's going to give you all authority in the heavens and the earth. This is post-resurrection. You're just hanging out with these guys? What was so important to you, Jesus, that you lingered more than a month after your resurrection to make sure that they got it? The kingdom. The ways of the kingdom. Wouldn't you have loved to have sat in on those lessons? What was he teaching them? All about the way things work. But what was it? Like, wow, 40 days more? They had three years of this, by the way. That's just a continuation of the thing he's been teaching them all along, right? They are disciples of the kingdom. They are apprentices in kingdom living, kingdom application. And he lingers for more than a month to make sure that they've got it before, right, he kind of lets the next, you know, chapter unfold, which is the book of Acts and then, you know, the coming of Christendom. Okay, so really a mind blower. He must have thought it was important, okay? You're a son. You need to become a son. How does God grow us up? Well, there's a way things work, all right? Next big thought was there's a way things work in the kingdom, just like there's a way things work everywhere else in this world, okay? No different. There's a way things work in the kingdom. Thanks for listening to part one of How God Grows Us Up. Next week, we'll continue and wrap up the message. 
where John looks at how God's kingdom operates on the principle of authority. I also want to invite you into the more of Ransomed Heart. There's the Ransomed Heart app. It's free. If you don't have that yet, please get that on your phone. It has daily prayers. You can listen to the podcast from it. And it also has ways to encourage you through daily readings and more. Until next week, I'm Alan Arnold for Ransomed Heart.